Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. Today's case is a true heartbreaker, so get your tissues ready. It actually took me quite a while to finish this particular episode because I just kind of kept getting sad and I'd, I'd put it away and then come back, have to come back to it. This is the murder of little Quinn Butt of Newfoundland. While I was researching this story, I, I came across a speech that Quinn's mom, Andrea Gauss, gave for an organization called Miles for Smiles. And I I literally cried when I heard her speech. And I, I think she talks so articulately and with so much insight that I just really wanted to share her words. Miles for Smiles is an amazing organization. It's a not-for-profit. It's dedicated to the support, awareness, and prevention of child abuse. And they have programs for adult survivors of child abuse. And they also focus on raising awareness around issues of child abuse. And one of their programs called the Darkness to Light actually trains children in sexual abuse prevention. I believe they are currently only in Newfoundland, but their website has some great resources that you can access from anywhere. Um, You can contact them at milesforsmilesfoundation at gmail.com. I felt a little bit of a bond with Andrea, even though we've never met. And I I hope that she's listening uh, and that I do her little puss justice. What she has had to endure is just a nightmare that well, I feared was going to be one of my own a number of years ago, but it certainly happens far too often. 
And you might find that there's some comparisons in this story to the Elaine Campioni case. When I was listening to Andrea speak, I, I found myself just nodding along to her story because so much of it was so familiar to my own. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the story of what happened to little Quinn. But then I want you to hear from Andrea about the about the before part of her story, because it's really the before part that is what in particular spoke to me uh, about her story, because there's just so many parallels there. And I think it's it's an important she just gives such an important talk about how these kinds of things can so easily happen um really to to anybody and to when you least expect it so i was i did um i reached out to miles uh, miles for smiles they were kind enough to reach out to andrea for me on my behalf and give me permission to use her speech so i really appreciate that um so definitely thank you to miles for smiles uh, but first i want to tell you a little bit about quinn um, she was just five years old on April 24th, 2016, when she unfortunately passed away. Quinn was the daughter of Andrea Gauss and was her world and was described by Andrea as her shopping buddy, her pussycat, and her best friend. Little Quinn was definitely a girly girl at heart. She loved getting pedicures with her mom and getting her nails painted and picking out her own clothes. Pink and purple were definitely her most favorite colors. Even at four, she was belting out Taylor Swift songs. She loved to bake cookies. She was always very enthusiastic for her ballet classes. Well, here, I'll let uh, Quinn's family tell you a little bit about who Quinn was. I think family always say it best. And this is from the candlelight vigil that was held shortly after she passed away. Quinn was a kind, caring and loving child, old beyond her years. At times she was a diva with her high heels, dresses and bows, but didn't hesitate to jump in the mud, skin out her knees or pick up a hockey stick with the boys. Quinn was a force to be reckoned with, and I believe she will continue to be a force to be reckoned with. Quinn was a loving daughter to her beautiful mommy and a child who had one amazing extended family who loved her dearly. Andrea had married Trent Butt in 2010 and they built a home in Carboneer, Newfoundland on Hayden Height. I don't know if that's Hayden Heights or Hayden Height. Little Quinn was born in 2011 into a bit of a turbulent marriage. They had separated a few times, but Andrea and Quinn had always returned to try to work it out. Finally, in January 2014, they split for good, and she moved with Quinn to a place in Harbor Grace, which is a little town just south of Carboneer. One website told me that it was only a six-minute drive between the two, but then another said it was 18 minutes, but either way, they were close to each other, and certainly by Canadian standards, they were. By April 24th of 2016, the divorce still had not been finalized. There continued to be some disputes over the custody of Quinn, and at this time, Quinn was just about to be starting kindergarten. Andrea was excited to be picking up Quinn from her dad's place on the evening of April 24th. They were going to be going away to Florida the next day for like a vacation, and Trent had been formally served with papers that Andrea would be taking Quinn to Florida for this vacation and that they planned on returning. In the early morning hours of April 24th, 2016, so this was at 4.25 a.m., 
Trent's neighbor, David Kennedy, was awoken by some popping and banging sounds. So looked out of his house to sort of investigate, and he saw a dim glow coming from the house beside him. So he went outside of his front door and saw that it was actually Trent's house next door that was on fire. He ran back into his house, told his wife to call 911, and then he ran to Trent's back door and started banging on it to try to awaken Trent. He tried the doors and all the windows, and he was running frantically around all sides of the house. He was finally able to flag down a couple of men that were driving by, and they managed to kick in the back door. But by this time, the back side of the house was completely awash in flames, so there was just simply too much smoke and heat to be able to actually enter the house. Ian Green was a volunteer firefighter and carbineer, so his pager went off at 5 a.m., Andrea got a call from her friend at the same time that woke her out of a dead sleep. And her friend told her that Trent's house was on fire. So obviously she immediately got into her vehicle. When she arrived at the scene, she could see Trent was on the lawn, but she wasn't able to spot Quinn anywhere. So you can imagine she was just, I I imagine she was just beside herself. Ian Green had first run into uh, like a small bedroom, like a child's room, but it was empty. So he then entered the master bedroom and was hit immediately by this waft of gasoline. And in there he found a man kind of of medium build laying on the bed, curled up with a small child. So Ian was able to see that the man, who was, of course, later identified as Trent, but was alive. So he dragged him outside and then ran back in for the little girl, who, of course, was identified later as Quinn. Um, And he scooped her up into his arms and ran outside towards paramedics that were working outside, um, hoping that um, they could get they could revive her. And as I mean, as soon as Andrea saw Quinn in his arms, she just immediately started to scream. I just. I just can't imagine. Trent was taken to the hospital and treated for cuts to his wrist and then apparently to his neck as well. The Crown Prosecutor Lloyd Strickland would later say his only failure in this murder-suicide plot was that he survived. Ian handed over little Quinn to paramedic Raymond Verge, Um, He was a 15-year veteran of the EM service of Harbor Grace, and he he found that Quinn was, she was cold, she had no blood pressure, no pulse, and unfortunately, five-year-old Quinn was declared dead at 6.14 a.m. Raymond later testified that her vital signs, or I guess lack thereof, um, suggested to him that she had actually been dead before the fire Um, because there was no soot noticed around her nostrils, which had told him that she had stopped breathing before the smoke and the fire had gotten to her. Constable Mohammed Aga was the first officer on the scene. His job was to look for evidence and then track the evidence, specifically any evidence of arson. He found um, a red gas can in the living room, There was a box cutter knife on the bedside table. A lighter was also found on that same table. And he found that the bed sheets in the master bedroom were wet with a, obviously a really strong gasoline smell. And there were blood stains that were still damp as well. He also found a diary and a small notebook in a plastic tote box that was in 
um, Trent's vehicle parked in the driveway. It was a pickup truck. The fire commissioner, Jim Barry, arrived the next morning after the fire had died out, and he found that the fire had actually started in the basement. But he did find that there was not a lot burnt in the living room. He did note the gas can that was found. He also found some burn marks on the dining room table that seemed to be a separate fire from the one that had started in the basement. Um, He also noticed the lighter on the bedside table and that second gas can that was in the master bedroom. Although there wasn't much evidence of actual burning in that master bedroom either. When the autopsy was done on Quinn by a doctor, Corner Simon Avis, he found that there was no anatomical cause of death, so nothing like cancer or heart defects. Uh, But he was actually unable to determine the cause of death, which he says that happens at about 5% of cases. um, That cause and manner cannot be determined. He did note that there was an abrasion on the upper lip and chin, and his report said, quote, it looked like teeth had been pushed against the upper lip. Um, Then there was a bruise on her left shoulder. He did look for evidence of toxic gases Um, Most people who die in a fire are usually killed by carbon monoxide, but he found that she had died before the fire was started. There was, like he said, no infection, no heart disease, no blunt force trauma, no stabbing, no poison. Um, And then he says, quote, no strangulation, but we can't exclude smothering. It's very common in smothering to see that abrasion on the lips. Um, So that could have been caused by smothering. So. They're just unable to determine. RCMP Constable Jonathan Morin, um, he took videotape evidence of the scene, both inside and outside of the house. And he, of course, obviously noticed the fire damage to the exterior of the house. And then there were two vehicles in the driveway. And all this was done like after the fire, obviously. So there was what he referred to as rescue materials on the lawn. And then, of course, police tape around the house. When Constable Moran searched the two vehicles in the driveway, the pickup truck was unlocked. And he found in there there was a large tote on the back seat. And it said Trent stuff on the lid. It included photos. And then there was also a notebook. He found no motor, no generator, ATV, or any other item that required fuel except for a lawnmower. So no other reason, obviously, to have jerry cans of gasoline around. RCMP Constable Peter Gauss, who is no relation to Andrea, he found out that the insurance on the house, which was still co-owned with Andrea, had been cancelled in June 2015, which was almost a year before the fire. Trent said later that it was just a way of reducing some costs. Peter Gauss examined the documents that were in that plastic tote in Trent's pickup, as well as any video that was picked up by the home security system. So when they looked at that, the video footage from April 22nd, which was the day before the murder, showed a man that was later identified as Bruce Little, um, actually serve papers to Trent to allow Andrea to take Quinn to Florida Uh, for their vacation, which would have been expected. The next video recorded on the 23rd of April at 8.39 p.m. Constable Gauss said that that video was significant only because it was the only video that showed where the truck was parked. That it was parked very far up the driveway, which was not usual. And in that video, 
heartbreakingly, you can hear little Quinn speaking about bad guys um, in the background telling her dad about a cartoon that she had been watching. So he found a red and black um, Hillroy coil notebook with the note labeled Final Words that was in Trent's handwriting. I'm just going to read you kind of the important parts of it. It's quite a long letter, so I'm not going to read it all. After everything I have put up, I have had to put up with over the past couple of years at the hands of a horrible, evil excuse of a woman, Andrea Gauss, I have taken my daughter's and my own life. I don't know how I did it. How could I end my beautiful, sweet daughter's life? I have thought about it for some time now, making me sick to my stomach and tears in my eyes. And then later it says, Quinn is with me now because I could not die knowing she would be left with Andrea. So Trent's trial, he was originally charged uh, with first-degree murder for Quinn and then, of course, arson, was supposed to start around February of 2018, but of course he fired his lawyers, so it was delayed for yet another year. And at that time, Andrea told CBC, that makes me a bit emotional because I know how hard the last two years were, and I know that this next year or two years it's hard to just pick up and go on with everything, with everyday normal life, knowing that this trial is still ahead of me. I just want it to be over, and it just feels like it's never going to end. I can totally understand how she felt at that time. So, as I said, Trent Butt was charged with arson and first-degree murder. He initially pled not guilty to both charges. But after something that Justice Donald Burrage said in his opening comments to the jury... When the jury or when the trial finally did start in March of 2019, which I don't know what that was, but something he said changed his arson plea to guilty, uh, but still not the murder of his daughter, claiming that he didn't know how or when he killed her and that he had no memory of doing it. Uh, his defense lawyer was Derek Hogan, and the Crown prosecutor was, was Lloyd Strickland. So, who is this Trent Budd character? Well, he worked in Alberta after 2007, and then he was in Long Harbor, but he wanted to be home with his family. But he said that things started to fall apart. Instead of his marriage to Andrea, we couldn't agree on anything. He claims that Andrea made false allegations of abuse during their marriage. There were charges laid against him. Um, they were later dismissed. As a result of that, he says that he lost friends and had no contact with Quinn um, when he actually had supervised contact. Now, I'm not going to get into whether or not the the allegations of abuse were true or not, or, or not. I think that when there's allegations of abuse, whether they're dismissed or not, it just it shows that there's a toxic it's toxicity of the relationship. But based on what happens later, of course. Let's just say it wouldn't be surprising if those charges had been true. He said that after the separation and Andrea moving to Paradise, which is where she was with Quinn, it was just south of Carboneer on the other side of Conception Bay, that his time with Quinn was even further reduced. In the fall of 2015, after his uncle died, he did think about suicide at that time, he wrote a suicide note that was around Christmas, but he said at that time, Quinn didn't fit into his suicidal thoughts. Uh, he said his mood got worse in 2016 and that he felt fatigued all the time. The day before the fire, he would he described it as an ordinary day. 
he said his father came by to visit when played and then they um she helped him cook some supper he says that he later woke up and just he said well here's what he says quote i concluded i must have suffocated her I felt sick. I picked her up in my arms and told her over and over again how much I loved her. It was then that I decided I was going to kill myself. No, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. When you wake up and you discover that your child is not responsive, your first thought is, oh, I must have smothered her. Like there's no call to 911, no attempts to revive her. I don't know about you, but as a parent... I think I would perform CPR on my child's rotting corpse. Like, I don't think you ever give up hope that your child could be revived. Um, And unless you're sleeping with an infant, which please don't ever sleep with an infant. It's very dangerous. um, That's maybe the only time that you, your thoughts might go to smothering. I think that he knew exactly what he did to her. He says, then I got in the truck and I wrote the suicide letter because I wanted the world to know what I was going through. But he said he was never thinking about killing Quinn. Once he finished writing the letter, he put it in that tote box and then into his truck. He then returned to the house. He says he got into bed with Quinn, was holding her, kissing her, and telling her that he loved her. He then, that was when he decided how he was going to kill himself and then to burn the house down. He testified on his behalf that he had disconnected the smoke alarms because he didn't want to alert the neighbors. He said that he spread gas into the basement and in the dining room area and that the gas on the bedspread was because he had um, tipped over a gas can when he went to kiss Quinn, but he was actually intending to spread that gas in a different room. He said that he wanted to burn the house down because there had been so much trouble that he wanted to leave a clean slate. Um, As I said, he testified on his own behalf and in cross-examination, he was asked about that he had disconnected the alarms, he lit the fire, cut his wrist, and he had said, yes, I didn't want to be burned alive. So the prosecutor, Lloyd Strickland, noted in his cross-examination that nowhere in his letter does he say anything about being sad or depressed and that he made no attempts to save or resuscitate Quim. In his closing statement, Strickland said, quote, If you believe he took steps to burn down the house, then he planned to murder Quinn. She was staying there that night. In all likelihood, she was going to die. So methodical and careful and meticulous, He moved the truck knowing at 6.45 that evening that he was going to be putting that letter in the truck later. Does it make sense for a parent to find a child dead in a bed to assume that he killed her and then write out a letter that explains the motive? Doesn't call 911. Does that make sense to you? All the separation and divorce stuff is not significant. The question is, did he commit first degree murder? Nowhere in the letter did he say he regretted killing Quinn. He wrote it with a steady hand. There was no evidence of tears on the page. All so clear-headed. So, Trent, of course, was convicted of both arson and first-degree murder. At the hearing when victim impact statements were read, Andrea said that she had a like a collage of pictures of, of Quinn, and one of the pictures was her little pink urn. And she looked directly at Trent and said, that urn, that's where your daughter is. Did she cry? 
Did she beg for her mum? Do you miss her voice? And does her voice haunt you? It was the worst thing he could have done. He murdered his daughter because he hated me. He has ripped my life apart, but I am starting a new chapter. She is watching over me. I hope this is the last time I ever see his smug face. You go, Andrea. Trent, in his statement to the court, asks for someone to advocate for him and to tell Quinn that he loves her. He did kind of apologize, but without looking at any of the family member, and then said, no one is more sorry than I am. But then, of course, added that if it weren't for the problems with family court and the CPS, I'm sure we would not be here today. So the judge said, I, for one, do not accept your apology, nor your expression of remorse, if that's what it was. Then, of course, he added that the pain and suffering that he had caused was beyond measure. So Trent Butt was 40 at the time. He received a mandatory sentence of 25 years, of course, for first-degree murder of Quinn. And then the arson justice barrage sentenced him to an additional three years for that, but concurrently. So Justice Barrage felt that it was, there were the aggravating factors in the case were that it was a very calculated murder. The arson was done to deny Andrea Quinn's remains and um, with burning the house down, there was, there had, he had created a risk to firefighters. Um, so those were the aggravating factors in his sentencing. Candlelight vigil was held after Quinn's death at the soccer field in Harbor Grace with literally thousands of people all wearing pink and purple. Uh, of course, Quinn's favorite colors. Andrea said at that time, the minute we found out Quinn was gone, everybody started pouring in their love and support. To see thousands of candles glowing for Quinn was phenomenal. We came because we're devastated. We're from a small community and grew up next to the family and... Uh, I think everybody who has children or knows children or grandchildren can relate and is absolutely heartbroken over the tragedy. It's sad what happened. Um, a lot of emotions, I guess, from most people, including myself. And, uh, you know, I guess there's sadness, there's anger, there's disappointment. We just want them to know that we're going to be here for a long, long time, forever and always for them. And uh, as you can see tonight with everybody here, she'll never be forgotten. So Andrea, who I think has, who has really the amazing strength of a thousand mama bears, has used her grief and Quinn's memory to really do some good in the world. Um, there was a really great article in the Newfoundland Herald by Danette Dooley that actually summarizes some of what Andrea has done to sort of help in her healing. There is a pink and purple playground named Quinn's Place that is at the Paradise Elementary that was opened in August of 2016. Um, that's the school that um, Quinn was going to start kindergarten in. A stranger, actually, named Adam Steed, was the one that started the fundraising initiative for that. Obviously, Adam has become a family friend of Andrea since then, and they are now planning to try to build another playground for Quinn in Carbonier, and that they're actually hoping that each year there's going to be a playground opened in a different community. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. At that candlelight vigil, there was also a release of hundreds of pink and purple balloons uh, done in Quinn's memory. And people from all over the world that maybe weren't able to attend the actual vigil had taken to Facebook to show their support, lit candles there on some of their live feeds. She, uh, Andrea received pictures from as far away as Brazil. She said there was a bunch of guys out on an oil rig with a big sign with the hashtag lighted up Quinn. And then of course she also received pictures from um, school kids. I mean, it just touched everybody. There is an annual ride for Quinn, an annual bursary in her name. There's a motorcycle ride that was organized by Elna Parsons. Uh, that's held in Ontario. And that money raised goes to support women and children experiencing domestic violence children who are staying at the Iris Kirby house, which is a shelter for women and children experiencing domestic violence. They also benefit from some of the fundraising done in Quinn's memory. The town of Harbor Grace is planning on erecting a memorial to Quinn. And of course, there's just tons of fundraising walks, personal donations. Andrea said that Quinn's best friend Cole had a ball hockey team that was in a tournament and they called themselves Quinn's boys. You can get justice for Quinn hair bows, ribbons, car magnets, and Andrea celebrated Quinn's sixth birthday in February 17th, the year after her murder by hosting a skating party in Bay Roberts. She says, quote, when you've lost a child and you feel like you can't go on, but you're overwhelmed with love. It's so sad, but it really does help. What do you do? Quinn was my world, but you can't just crumble. I would rather take part in these celebrations. I refuse to shut down. And I want people to know that Quinn would love all of this. This brings me to Miles for Smiles and the speech that Andrea gave in support of initiatives to prevent domestic abuse. Um, she really articulates herself so well in the events leading up to Quinn's death. So I'm going to let Andrea play us out because I'm really just kind of ball of mush after listening to her and I, I really don't have any other closing words other than thank you for listening 
I am a survivor of domestic violence, but before that, I was a victim. People are often shocked when they learn that because I do not look like a victim. But what exactly does a victim look like? Unfortunately, victims of abuse have no recognizable face. There are no distinguishing features, no common denominators, no telltale traits. The person standing next to you, that could be the face of a victim. Your friend, your coworker, your cousin, your sister, all could be faces of a victim. Your niece, your nephew, your child, potentially the sweetest faces of a victim. Look in the mirror. Even there you might find the face of a victim. I am here to tell you that no matter how strong you think you are, it can happen to you. I should know. I had a happy childhood filled with healthy relationships. I knew nothing of domestic violence other than what I saw on TV. I never gave much thought to it because surely it was not something that would ever affect me. I was a strong, independent child who grew into a strong, independent woman. I had my own mind. I knew right from wrong. I knew what a healthy relationship was, and I would never stand for anyone treating me badly, whether it be mentally, emotionally, or physically. Little did I know. In July of 2006, I met Prince Charming. He was quiet and strong, educated and grounded, mature and sensible. He had a good head on his shoulders with qualities that deemed to point to a bright future. He had this innocent look about him that drew me in. He was charming and went out of his way to make me feel special, to make me feel wanted. He often talked about wanting a family and longed for the happy home life he never had. That melted my heart from the very start. The first month was a romantic whirlwind, and I was hooked. By August of that same year, warning signs started to appear. Of course, I didn't know at that time because I had never been educated on warning signs of abuse. And why would I need to be? It would never happen to me. It started when he asked for all of my passwords. Once he had access to my social media accounts, he started deleting my male friends from them. I don't think I was completely blind. I knew it wasn't right, but in some weird way, I thought it was kind of cute how jealous and protective he was over me. It clearly, it was clearly a sign of how much he really loved me, right? By October, the warning signs had developed into full-fledged alarm bells. Though I refused to hear them at, at the time, his emotional and mental manipulation continued but he added physical control. In an attempt to silence me in the midst of a loud argument, he clamped his hands over my mouth with enough force that he dislocated my jaw. He cried afterwards and seemed sincerely sorry. I believed him. And so the cycle of abuse began, though I didn't know it at the time, because I had never been educated on the cycle of abuse. Why would I need to be? It would never happen to me. The abuse continued, it wasn't blatant, and was mostly hidden by his masterful manipulation. It was a slow transition. That cute jealousy eventually grew into isolation from my family and friends. 
This man thrived on power and was used to having control in every aspect of his life. He desperately wanted to exert that control over me. Looking back, it amazes me how easily I was swept off my feet, blindsided by what I thought were displays of love and desire to protect. In reality, it was all just manipulation, tactics meant to make me feel weak, alone, and helpless. And they worked. But I loved him, and I remembered well those early conversations, the ones where he expressed his desire for that happy family and that happy life. I thought if I could love him enough, I could change him, soften him up by giving him the things he had always dreamed of. So in September of 2008, I married him. The abuse continued. The manipulation and control worsened. I handed over all control and decisions that go along with running a household, including finances. Warning bells I didn't hear because I didn't know. There was no partnership in our marriage. I was feeling more isolated and alone by the minute. Yet I still wanted to be one be the one to instill the change he needed. So in February 2011, I gave him the one thing he wanted most, a child to love, my queen. The abuse continued, only now he had another card in his hand, another possession to protect. He was now trying to isolate us both from our family and friends and was desperate to keep us to himself and under his power. But it wasn't only him who wanted that perfect, happy family. I wanted it too, so desperately. And as bad as things were, they weren't always bad. So I kept on thinking that if I could only get him to change, we would both have everything we ever dreamed of. The abuse continued. After years of praying that things would change, I grew exhausted from making excuses to hide the truth from family and friends. So by this time, it seemed that everyone around me could see the dysfunction, everyone but me. Eventually, I realized the severity of the situation and that it was no longer just about me. I knew it was not healthy for my daughter to grow up in such toxic environment. So as hard as it was, I finally found the strength and courage I needed. The first time I left, I was gone for six months. Through six months of his pleading and begging and endless apologies, his I will changes and it will never happen again, I held my ground. When he agreed to counseling, I reluctantly went back. There was a nagging in the back of my head that warned me I was making a mistake, but I thought I owed it to my little family to give it one more shot. I wanted to be able to tell Quinn one day when she was grown and questioning that her mommy gave it her all, that she tried her best to make it work. For her. So I went back. The counseling stopped, but the abuse continued. I finally knew with certainty that things would never change. That no matter how hard I tried, there was nothing I could do to make it work. It was out of my control. I left him for the last time in January of 2014. It was a new beginning for Quinn and I, but new beginnings aren't all they're cracked up to be. At first, it was the desperate attempts at getting me back, the apologizing, the promises, the desperation. It was hard to be strong during this phase. I remember my sister gave me a diagram 
of the cycle of abuse as a reminder. And I kept that piece of paper on my fridge in my tiny one-bedroom apartment. And every day I looked at it to be reminded. Reminded, though he will apologize, though he will be sweet and charming, that it will always come back to a place of violence. <laughs> the abuse and manipulation continued, worsened even. After years of studying my behavior and responses, he knew exactly how to get to me. After a particularly harsh physical interaction, he was put under a no-contact order. And because he believed he was above the law, probably because it seemed he was, he broke that no-contact order. A broken no-contact order and still no consequences for him. He learned how to use Quinn as a pawn and saw her as a great means to punish and exert control over me. The abuse transferred over to her as he subjected her to what I feel was mental and emotional torture. He learned to manipulate her the same way he had manipulated me, and I was rendered helpless once again. The damage he was inflicting on her left no physical scars, but the emotional scars would surely last, last a lifetime. I so desperately wanted to protect her from that. I was her mother. It was my job to protect her, and I couldn't. No one would let me. The abuse continued. My ex never played by the rules in our marriage, and the same applied for family court. I remember one time in particular when he kept her against her will and against my will and against the court's ruling for a full month. The custody agreement in place at the time was week for week. I had spent Christmas without my little girl that year, and it was hard. But Easter was to be ours. I dropped her off with her father for the week before our holiday. But when I went to pick her up a week later, he wasn't there. No explanation, no discussion, nothing. He refused to let me speak to her on the phone. I was heartbroken and angry and panicked. Surely there was something the courts could do. I quickly learned that there are no consequences for breaking custody agreements. I didn't get my daughter back for Easter that year because it would take a court to get a court date to get her back. It would take a full month before the court date would arrive. A full month before he was finally ordered to give her back. Stop for a minute to think about how this situation affected Quinn. A small child, so attached to her mother, kept apart against either of their wishes. Picture the confusion and anguish that must have plagued her little head and her broken little heart as she wondered what had happened to her mommy. Where was she? Why wasn't she calling? Why wasn't she coming to get her? This is how he abused Queen, by using her to abuse me. And through it all, he was granted access to our child. Despite charges of physical abuse against me, he was granted access to our child, despite the fact that he never abided by rules set out by the family court. He was granted access to our child. Me, I followed every rule, even though it physically sickened me to pass her over for fear of losing custody altogether. Yet he suffered no consequences, and I still had to hand her back when it was his turn. One thing I've learned through my experiences with family violence and family court is that the system is flawed. 
and desperately needs changing. One day, in the midst of my struggle, my friend got a call from a social worker. They had called to ask her if she thought I would go back to the relationship, because due to reports of abuse, they may have to remove Quinn from the home if I did. That actually makes perfect sense to me. What doesn't make any sense to me is that they were okay with allowing Quinn to go back in his care on her own without anyone there to protect her. Yes, it is up to us to protect our children and to properly protect our children. We need to instill change. Quinn was taken from me for the last time on April 24, 26th. Unfortunately, this time, no court can order him to give her back. I'm sharing all of this with you today for a reason. I am sharing because the system failed me. It failed my child. I'm sharing because it is so important for us to be educated. All of us, as we never know when your face or the face of someone you love could become the face of a victim. I'm sharing because it is time for those in power to finally realize that domestic abuse does not just affect a domestic partner. Children in a violent home automatically become victims themselves. That by simply being in the home, these children become victims of abuse. They are subject to the emotional scars that go along with being forced to look on so helplessly. I am sharing because it is time for those in power to see that if a person is capable of abusing the partner they love so deeply, that they are also capable of abusing the children they love so deeply. I'm sharing in hopes that our story, Quinn's and mine, can instill changes in the system. I am sharing so that in the future, no mother has to stand here and share with you a story like mine. In the end, I am sharing to save lives. Thank you. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.